Well, it seems like a weird joke, but what does a pig gelder, a woman who dressed up as a man in order to operate on someone, and the Queen of England have in common? Well, the answer is cesarean section. Cesarean section is the most common laparotomy performed worldwide. At its recent peak, cesarean sections accounted for about 32% of all births in the United States. The history and evolution of C-section is a combination of the history of anatomical dissection, anesthesia, and antisepsis. As I heard it once said by a leader in obstetrics, the field of OBGYN is a combination of death, deceit, and germs. Its origins in antiquity are rooted in mystery, and some of the landmarks in obstetrics are simply amazing. So let's walk through this brief history for a better understanding of the advent of this most common abdominal surgery. I realize this is a little geeky, but I really do find the history of cesarean to be, well, pretty fascinating, especially when you consider what was done before the advent of anesthesia and germ theory. We're going to start with the etymology of the term. The etymology of cesarean section derives from the Roman legal code, the Lex Cesari. This law had its origins from the Lex Reglia, which was the 8th century BC law that stated that a baby should have to be cut from its mother's womb if she died before giving birth. Now, the derivation of the word Caesar and cesarean is also somewhat debated with two possible explanations. First, it comes from the Latin verb cadare, which means to cut. Children born by post-mortem operations were referred to as Sisones. The surname Caesar was attached to the family Julius, beginning with Sextus Julius Caesar, who was praetor, which is basically like an emperor, in 208 B.C., Now, why the name was added remains somewhat debatable, although it may be that a member of the family was born with abundant hair. Yep, abundant hair, because another derivation of the word cesarea is hair. The third possibility, but it's much less accepted, is derived from the possibility that this family line, this Julius line, had been born with very light blue or bluish-gray eyes. Yep, it's another Latin term, which is oculi sesasi, which comes from, again, where you get Caesar. So when Augustus, the adopted son of Julius Caesar, became emperor in 27 BC, he took the name Caesar, as did the subsequent emperors. Isn't that interesting? So again, whether it came from the Latin cadare, which means to cut, or if it actually came from cesarea, which is also a term for hair, because they may have had abundant hair, it's just fascinating history. The story of Julius Caesar's birth is also more folklore than truth. It comes from Pini, the elder, who wrote extensively on medical matters, including childbirth. Much of the writings from Pliny, and that's P-L-I-N-Y, were from the perspective of traditional folklore practice in an agrarian age. Caesar's mother, Aurelia, survived childbirth and outlived her son to bury him 55 years later. So the fact that she lived and gave birth successfully rules out the possibility that Caesar was born by abdominal delivery. 
Caesarean section was performed for the sake of the child, with the mother being sacrificed. Now, despite occasional references to operations on living mothers, mostly it was done to retrieve the infant from a dead or dying mother. In other words, it was a last resort issue. Now, this was undertaken perhaps in the vain hope of saving the child or for religious reasons to bury the child separately from the mother. Principally, it was a procedure, again, of last resort and was not intended to save the mother's life. With rare exceptions, the fate of live children born in this matter is not well documented, so we don't know if these children survived or not. There are sporadic reports of historical figures born by Caesarean section. Raymond Nonatus, that is N-O-N-N-A-T-U-S, and that name is significant, and I'll tell you why in just a minute, was born in 1204. This was a Catalan saint, and he was given his surname Nonatus from the Latin Nonatus, which means not born, because he was born in this manner. Now remember, we're talking about 1204, because his mother died in childbirth, so he did survive and was given sainthood. In 1316, Robert II of Scotland was born by Caesarean section, and his mother, Marjorie Bruce, died. The first recorded account of a Caesarean section being done successfully, where the patient actually survived, was in the year 1500. Now, let me be very clear. There was some writings, even from antiquity, we're talking about in the era BC, from ancient Hebrew texts and Egyptian texts that described the removal of a child from the mother. But this was usually, again, done when the mother had been demised, not on living patients. So the first account of this being done on a woman who was living and the woman survived was in the year 1500. The first recorded case actually occurred in Switzerland where Jacob Neufer was a pig gelder. Now, hang on because it gets a little wackier from there. Now, apparently, according to legend and written texts, he successfully performed the operation on his wife after a prolonged labor. She spent several days in labor and had assistance from 13 midwives but was still unable to deliver her baby. Her husband received permission from the religious authorities to perform a cesarean section. Now, miraculously, the mother lived and, watch this, subsequently gave birth to five other children by vaginal deliveries, including a set of twins. Yep, she V-backed. Now, the baby lived to the age of 77 years after the abdominal delivery. But historians question the accuracy of this story, considering it that it was not reported until 82 years after the event. So it's possible that this was an extra uterine abdominal delivery and not really a true uterine hysterotomy, as it seems unlikely that she could have had so many subsequent vaginal deliveries without rupture. But nonetheless, Jacob Neufer, and that's N-U-F-E-R, found his way into the history books because of the operation that he performed inside of his small little house in the year 1500. 
All right, let's hold off there for just a minute because if this story is true, that's pretty remarkable. Now, remember, even though he was a pig gelder, which means that he had done some surgical procedures on animals, there was no real known human anatomy information. There, there was no anatomical dissection during that time. That didn't come until 1543 when anatomical dissection became a thing. In 1543, abdominal surgery was still limited as knowledge about human anatomy was just sparse. But that's when the landmark work of Andreas Vesalius comes on the scene. He wrote De Corporis Humani Fabrica, which was published in 1543, and it depicted female anatomy and abdominal structures with considerable accuracy. This provided the theoretical foundation for operative obstetrics, which emerged in the 18th and 19th centuries. Medical education in the mid to late 1800s included access to human cadavers and greater emphasis on anatomy through personal dissection. Now, such training was available only to men, and increasingly from the 17th century on, women were relegated to attendance at childbirth. Remember, that's where the original midwifery or midwives came from. Now, from the 17th and the 18th century, this is where a lot of changes occurred, and male practitioners became more prevalent in regular deliveries with the advent of forceps. One of the pioneers in forceps vaginal deliveries was Chamberlain, and this was in London, who established himself as a forceps specialist and actually did high-level forceps, which, of course, had a lot of trauma. But nonetheless, he brought men back to the assistance of regular deliveries, and he called them man midwives or obstetricians. That word means one who stands in front of or who stands with the patient. In 1598, the term C-section was coined following the publication in 1598 by Jacques Guillemot on his book on midwifery. He used the term la section cadetti, which was the cesarean section. It generally became known as cesarean section rather than cesarean delivery from that point forward. The first English edition appeared 14 years later, but nonetheless, these expositions on this abdominal surgery remain largely theoretical because because of the risks involved, namely bleeding and infection. All right, notice we haven't talked about anesthesia yet or antisepsis because they're not on the scene yet. So until the early 19th century, we're talking about the early 1800s, surgeons were called barbarians, and that's where the term barber surgeon comes from. Surgery still relied on age-old techniques, and its practitioners were dreaded and viewed by the public as little better than butchers or barbers or tooth pullers. Although many surgeons possessed the anatomical knowledge knowledge and the courage to perform these serious procedures, they had been limited by the patient's pain and the problems of infection. Well into the 1800s, surgery continued to be barbarous, and the best operators, the best surgeons, were known for their speed with which they could amputate a limb quickly or suture a wound. And remember, again, no anesthesia. In 1815, though, something happened that was pretty remarkable in Britain. This was where the first C-section in Britain was performed, and it was by a woman. Now, the range of time here is anywhere from about 1815 to 1821, but most agree that it was around 1815. 
The first recorded successful cesarean in the British Empire was conducted by a woman, sometimes between 1815 to 1821. James Miranda Stewart Berry performed the operation while masquerading as a man and serving as a physician to the British Army in South Africa. As if not groundbreaking with that fact alone, anesthesia, remember, had not yet been discovered or used. That came in 1846. It is not clear how the cesarean section by Miranda Berry was accomplished without the use of anesthesia or if the patient actually survived. Now, Berry was actually named Margaret Ann Bulkley at birth and was known as a female in childhood. Berry, though, lived as a man in both public and private life, at least in part, according to the historians, to be accepted as a university student and pursue a career as a surgeon. Now, Berry's birth sex was only known to the public and to her military colleagues after her death. All right, that takes us to 1846 with the advent of anesthesia out of Massachusetts. Let's talk about that next. All right, be thankful for 1846 because that's where anesthesia had its landmark case. Out of Massachusetts General Hospital, dentist William T.G. Morton used ether while removing a facial tumor. This medical application of anesthesia rapidly spread to Europe. News of this development quickly spread, and at the same year, Robert Liston successfully amputated a leg using ether. This ether, though, was soon found to have disadvantages because it caused lung irritation and it became unstable when exposed to the air. There was, however, another substance that was proving promising, and that was chloroform. In 1847, in Edinburgh, James Young Simpson, yep, an obstetrician, experimented on himself, which is not advised, with chloroform and induced a state of unconsciousness. Within two weeks, he administered chloroform to 50 patients for surgery. Although Simpson is remembered for his discovery and the use of chloroform, he was also one of the outstanding figures in obstetrics in the 19th century, and that's where you get Simpson forceps. In 1847, Simpson successfully provided chloroform to the wife of one of his colleagues during childbirth, which led to its widespread use in obstetrics. But still, anesthesia was opposed for the pains of childbirth for moral or religious reasons. But that all changed in 1853 when the Queen had a different idea. Before we get into the Queen of England's contribution to OB, let's stick around here with 1847 because 1847 was a really big year for medicine. In 1847, as we've just covered, Simpson used chloroform successfully. And in the same year, infection control got some much-needed attention as well. Major advances in asepsis began with the introduction of hand-washing by another obstetrician, Ignace Samuelweiss, in 1847. Samuelweiss was chief of the maternity ward at Vienna Maternity Hospital. He considered that puperal fever or childbed fever was caused by medical students who were performing post-mortems in the basement of the hospital and then running to do deliveries without washing hands. But nonetheless, his conclusions about the origins of infection were at first vigorously opposed. Samuelweiss was mocked, placed in an insane asylum, and ultimately had a tragic death in defeat. His contributions would remain largely ignored for another 20 years. 
Now we get to the Queen. In 1853, the Queen of England, Queen Victoria, used chloroform during the birth of Prince Leopold in 1853 and then Beatrice in 1857. Chloroform became popular for pain relief in the upper classes and became a practical means of anesthesia, paving the way for a safer cesarean section. Well, have I piqued your interest? Pretty fascinating stuff, right? And we haven't even gotten to the rebirth of antisepsis and pick up where Ignaz Samuelweiss tragically left off. So in part two, we're going to catch up on this story and pick up this account from 1867 with Joseph Lister and the rebirth of antisepsis. But for now, we'll bring part one on this history of cesarean to a wrap. Thanks for being part of our podcast family, and we'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.